everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Alex Steed. I will be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall, momentarily. First, I want to tell you there is a new Patreon bonus episode. It's about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's about the new one. We did not love the movie, but we talked about it for close to an hour, nonetheless. <laughs> I love to say this about our episodes. I love to say this about our bonus conversations. Like, even if you think the subject matter is not for you based on whatever the movie is, I guarantee there's going to be something in the exchange that you may find worthwhile. And I think that that's very much the case for this conversation about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So please check that out. Patreon.com slash you are good. Speaking of Patreon bonus episodes, we don't have a new episode this week. Next week, we're going to talk about Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. It was a delightful conversation with our friend J.V. Hampton Van Zandt. You will hear that next week. I am so excited for you to hear that. What you will hear is an old Patreon bonus episode that we put together about Julia and Julia a while back. What could be better than two Amy Adams movies in a row. Thank you for your patience while we take the week off. Can't burn out making a thing that we love. It was just time to enjoy some of the springtime sun, and we encourage you to do the same if you're in a place where that's possible. And if it's not, sorry that I'm being braggadocious. We will have a playlist for this week's episode. You can find a link to that in the show notes. This week's playlist, we always put them together with uh, different contributions from each of us, is rich in lovely novelty food imagery. I think that's it from me. Let's talk about Julia and Julia. I hope that everything's great on your end. You, my friend, are good. We appreciate you being here. Thank you for everything that you do. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling people about what we do. All right, that's enough. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Bonjour, Alex Steed. It's really the truth. I think that this is the only food-related movie that I watch where I seriously question whether or not I'm horny enough <laughs> as an adult. Because just wait till you're fifty. Yeah, Julia Jones makes me feel <laughs> inadequate. <laughs> so we're talking about Julie and Julia. <laughs> I love how we always say what we're talking about is if people are like blindly clicking on podcast episodes, just be like, don't tell me what it's about. They'll say. I think you have to say stuff a lot, even if it's clear. I think you have to be like, okay, you've seen the title. I'm here to remind you. And uh, I'll tell you later, just in case you've forgotten what's happened, because you have to live in this world. I'm like, I am not going to... <laughs> cater to people's inability to read context clues and then I really confuse people and I'm like no stop shut it down <sighs> yes I'll explain it fine I feel I really do feel like on at least three occasions I have to be explicit about or hint at what our show's about that's a really important thing yeah which is great because I don't want to do it because I'm still living in my world of denial my, my mom was just visiting for several days and it was lovely we had a wonderful time but my mom in order to feel comfortable, she's a very literal person and she needs to have questions answered and that's what she needs. Like we've since kind of figured out our differing styles, I'd say. If something happens, she tries to suggest the reasons for maybe why it happened and I like having no idea. Right. And you just watched this movie with her. So what was that like? She was actually great. Like we we both were, I think, like toasted by the past several days and she just like consumed it. And like we only watched about like maybe like 60 percent of it together. And then she was like, oh, I'm going to have to watch the rest of that movie, which I was genuinely surprised by. Ah, 
But anyway, the movie we're watching is called Julie and Julia, and it's about a woman named Julie and another woman named Julia, and they're both cooking food. <laughs> People kind of uniformly love the portrayal of of Julia Child in this movie as portrayed by Meryl mm-hmm. Streep. And we will talk a bit about, obviously about Nora Ephron and their re- working relationship. We'll talk about stuff related to Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep being great. People love Meryl Streep in this. The people love Stanley Tucci in this mm-hmm. jury is mixed on Amy Adams as Julie. And I think maybe I have had that experience initially. And then rewatching this movie, I was like, oh, I know I know this person very well. And this person is me in a lot of ways. <laughs> because she is me. Because I'm Julie. I have never had a problem with Julie. I've always liked the Julie parts. They've always been very affirming to me. And ever since this movie came out, my mom and I saw this on Christmas Day, I think, when it was first in theaters. We both loved it. This is a big movie between me and my mom. Whenever an editor accepts a piece or something like that, when I get some kind of a career moment, we go like, they love the book. It's It's a thing for us. But like for this entire time, every time I bring up this movie, the universal response I get is like, oh, yeah, I really like the Julia parts, but like that Julie character is insufferable. And I'm like, I'm Julie, <laughs> a woman who defines herself by becoming obsessed with other women. Come on. Um, <laughs> and mm, built a career that way. Yeah, And has a relationship with the public as a result of it. Yes. And then kind of lives what I know to be one of your worst nightmares, mm-hmm. which is the woman she becomes obsessed with has a less than enthusiastic response about her coverage. Yeah, which I feel I've experienced with Tanya Harding because I love her. We've never met. There was a moment when I thought I was going to be able to interview her when I, Tanya, was coming out. And then she got, I think, exhausted by attention pretty quickly and pretty fast was like, I'm not doing interviews unless they pay me. And I was like, well, I can't... It's not really a thing in journalism, unfortunately. I had tried to reach out to her when I was writing, researching my initial essay, and her publicist was like, no, Tanya isn't doing interviews at this time. And so I wrote the essay without her input. And then she's made remarks which might be might be about my work in addition to other works, about building careers off of writing about her, which I did, guilty. I don't think that she likes me. And if she doesn't dislike me, then she just doesn't think of me and I might never get to meet her. And like, I feel like Mm. I've had that experience and I don't care. I love her. She saved me. She made me a feminist. I will put butter in the museum of her someday. (laughs) You said that you have an experience, you have the experience of this movie with your mother. Like what's your relationship with it? And beyond that extreme relatability, what stands out in this for you? My mom and I saw this when it came out. We both loved it. And I think that she even liked Julie less than I did, which is fine because she grew up in a different marketplace of ideas than I did and had to (laughs) had a different experience establishing herself in a career. I just feel like this is one of my go to feel good movies because I mean, on the one hand, there's this really kind of unconventional love story that's about finding yourself. This is also a story that I think academics can really relate to. Certainly in my time as an academic, I really did. 
Because if you're in academia, aside from all the weird red tape and the endless papers and all of that, what a lot of people are there for is they've decided to shape their lives around Charlotte Bronte or something. (laughs) And this thing where like you are dedicating your life to someone else's life to a significant extent and to this very real relationship that you're having with the language and the best of someone's self that they left for you or perhaps the most confusing or vexing aspects of a self in many of these cases. And on one hand, it's just this wonderful fantasia where you get to watch people make and eat beautiful food, which I think most people enjoy seeing. And you get to watch Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci consume each other like delicious pastries. (laughs) But also just when we were deciding what to do for a bonus, I was kind of throwing out titles at you that I knew would really make me happy because we're lowering ourselves into the misery of November and the darkness of winter. And we need all the brightly colored candy movies we can get just being reminded that life is made more delicious by our connections not just with the people we know but the people who we can speak to through books and cookbooks and songs and just and the art that they made and sometimes it's art that you can recreate in your own kitchen I mean, I think that this is what I related to most with Julie this time around. I mean, similarly, just in like a much different arena, like I am very much into like esoteric urban history. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My mom and I today walked around a graveyard for several hours while we were hanging out today. And like I looked up gravestones and I tried to find the history of the people and institutions represented by those gravestones. That's what I enjoy. Mm -hmm. Like that's how my mom and I related to each other today. And then like that's how I relate to the world. You could have just said, I'm from New England. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I will put 40 or 50 hours into like researching one of the people and then have a podcast about it that like only a handful of people will listen to. That will be how I relate to in area, how I relate to reality and yeah. then how I relate to people. So like I saw that more this time around than before and then and then also like we just talked about with regard to your experiences the potentially mortifying reality of if you do that you may have to encounter in one way or another the ghosts that you're chasing because the ghosts might be alive mm-hmm. <laughs> and then be judged accordingly i really enjoyed the portrayal of julie as a person who I don't know, like if you are a person who in her case, as she's portrayed in the movie, I have not read the book, but if you're working a job essentially connecting people with like their insurance claims and Mm -hmm. with regard to like 9-11 and you're not living around your friends and the friends you have are kind of like vain, rich people, like all all of those things. Aside from Gail the Snail. (laughs) Aside from Gail the Snail, who I adore. (laughs) If that's your case, but also you don't have an immediately available self. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to live in some other realities while you're connecting with whatever part of that self is immediately out of reach and to put it into like an actual practice. Yeah. We have done an episode about Sleepless in Seattle where we talked about that movie really almost eerily anticipating the parasocial age that we're living in. And I think that this one Mm. is really doing that too. I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking about this because I've listened to the audiobook of Heartburn thrice in the past couple of months, which is also read by Meryl Streep. (laughs) 
beautifully and wonderfully and hilariously. And one of the themes in that is that's a book that's very closely modeled on Nora Ephron's own crack up of her marriage to Carl Bernstein, him cheating on her while she was pregnant. And of course, the best revenge for that is to write a book basically about that and then put recipes in it. There's this part that I love where she makes the husband character in that a columnist and talks about how he's just like strip mining everything around him, everything in their lives for material all the time. Like they'll be sitting at breakfast and he's like, English muffins aren't as good as they used to be. Is there a column in that? And she's like, "Uh, no, probably not. And like, there's a line about by the time their son grows up and wants to write anything about himself, it'll all have already been taken by his dad. You know, this doesn't feel cringy in the way that I think a lot of media at the time, you know, that was like blogging. What the heck is that about? Because I think that this movie gets that blogging is just another wave of the thing that people have been doing for a really long time, which is if your job becomes being entertainingly yourself, what boundaries do you have to draw around that? Right. And there are several occasions in which the people in Julie's life, including her husband, are like, don't put this in your blog, which is a thing that, you know, you kind of need bigger, bigger, more explicit boundaries around that include like when we can and can't say what's going to appear in stuff. Mm -hmm. I think she wrote more extensively about the author wrote more extensively about this, which I'd love to actually read and know what that was like Mm -hmm. becoming a public figure and being married. And I have experience having been in relationships where I was much more public than the other people and I know that that can lead to some shit especially in the earlier days everyone wasn't tweeting <laughs> right and when we were all I think more naive and the internet felt like a sparsely populated mall empty storefront shoe store empty storefront popcorn store and now it's just like one of those mega structures in Dubai where there's a ski slope in there somehow obviously love that image did you pick up on the fact that this is structurally obviously a much Mm. different plot because of what's covered but this is structurally the same as sleepless in seattle oh no this would be the same if like you know she and julia a 90 year old julia met each other um, (laughs) at the top of a building but like both of our protagonists the person who is in love with the other and the person who is loved live entirely separate lives on screen yeah god you're right but it does kind of that climactic moment she leaves the butter for julia at the museum that is their that is their meeting that speaks to some stuff that Nora Ephron's been through. But I get it. I get the sense that Nora Ephron was much more into the being in love part of being in love than the being in a relationship part of being in love. I also suspect, and I think that she explicitly said this, although I wouldn't swear to it because I haven't read it in 15 years, in one of her essay collections that like, for your third marriage, marry an Italian guy. That's Stanley Tucci. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Can you talk a bit about Nora Ephron and who she is and why you find her delightful? First of all, she is delightful. She's extremely funny. I was talking with our friend, Princess of Baltimore, Queen of Maryland, Laura Littman, about Heartburn as I was listening to it. And she was like, yeah, Nora Ephron like plagiarizes from herself sometimes, which is like, if you're going to plagiarize from anyone, it should be from yourself. But there's, (laughs) for example, a line in Heartburn that goes skinny, big tits, your basic nightmare. And then that shows up again. in When Harry Met Sally. Is that plagiarizing yourself or you just generally find that nightmarish and you're going to bring it up a couple of times? Or it's just like a leitmotif. It's it's your own work. It's whatever you want it to be. But 
if it's good material and it's been 30 years, you know, you might as well throw it out again. Mm. And so there's also a passage in Heartburn that shows up again in Julie and Julia. The great thing about cooking is that when nothing is certain, you know that cooking will work. You know that there are these things you do and it will come together. She really created the modern romantic comedy as we know it. Obviously, I love all funny women. I think being a funny woman is like a really interesting place to inhabit in society because like the sort of 20th century American construction of femininity that you're if you're writing romantic comedies in the 80s or if you're a tween in the 90s or whatever it is is knowing that kind of what makes you attractive according to that metric is that you're passive and that you will laugh at jokes that other people are telling and so to be making other people laugh there's always power in that being a woman who can make people laugh to me is a very special form of power and I think growing up Nora Ephron was one of the people who taught me to be funny you know and so I do have that like Julie Julia relationship with her too and then also I think she was like known to people in her inner circle for being like not the sweetest always. Mm. I think she was, uh, we're all complicated people. And I think it's also, especially in this time when parasocial relationships are pretty much universal. I think it's nice to know that like, not everyone has to be your friend or someone who could be your friend. Like I wouldn't necessarily want to have been friends with Nora Ephron and that's not on the table, but like I can still learn from and enjoy what she gave to us and she gave us a lot this is a movie that is just such a joy to watch and to me always has is enjoyable partly because it has depth you know it's not a potato chip it's a buff bourguignon <laughs> that's really interesting that you say that about like how you know what her image was and how she was known because we deal with that a bit with how what is julie's husband's name in this movie eric yeah we have a conversation between julie and eric about parasocial relationships before the word parasocial relationship was so broadly used where yeah. he reminds her the only relationship with julia that matters is this one that you have in your head right that for you is like what's guiding you and motivating you and like yeah. your real relationship with her which is basically like someone asked julia child some question about this endeavor of these i was as it's portrayed in the movie about this endeavor and, and julia child didn't have like the nicest things to say immediately that is secondary right because like they're both as real and i love that when she flops over and she's like i'll never meet her and he's like you are already know her i kind of like that they never say it explicitly but like she kind of lives from that point on in the movie at least she lives her relationship within the confines of those boundaries and you know everyone should do that yeah <laughs> it's, it's to acknowledge that this is like a very specific kind of relationship and it basically goes that far mm -hmm. there's some interesting overlap with stuff that we've touched on recently here one is that we had just talked about how mama mia here we go again and the last movie that meryl streep was in with Cher was silkwood which mm -hmm. is a movie that nora efron wrote for mike nichols mm -hmm. and then they went on to make heartburn which has meryl streep in it basically as her as a stand-in for her which is why she ultimately reads the audiobook have you seen heartburn and, and what is your relationship with that no i haven't seen it yet i'm because i just love the book so much if i tried more new things i would find the new things i loved more often but i don't so mm -hmm. it doesn't happen to me that much so i'm kind of saving it 
for just, I don't know, a slightly special or slightly sad evening or something. But I have been listening a lot to Carly Simon's theme from Heartburn coming around again. Oh, wow. A classic. Yeah. We've talked about the intersection of Mike Nichols, Meryl Streep, and Nora Ephron several times because I had just read that biography not long ago. But did I tell you the story about how originally Mandy Patinkin was supposed to be in Heartburn? I think you mentioned that. Was he supposed to be the husband? He was supposed to be the Jack Nicholson character, and it just didn't work. Like, for whatever Mm. reason, like, his performance performance just didn't work. I feel like they were watching the dailies and they were like, and then Mike Nichols takes the headphones off and he's like, you know what we need? We need a real shit bag. <laughs> well, they, well, he had worked with Jack Nicholson and Carnal Knowledge and like they had a friendship and they, they were both giants. Jack Nicholson ended up stepping in and taking over. And I know that that was of concern to Street because it went from her being the lead in this movie to Mm -hmm. having an equal, at least with regard to notoriety at that point, Mm -hmm. to it being a Jack Nicholson movie. Right. Which I imagine would have been very, very frustrating. But the last time we talked about Everon, I feel like I have actually felt bad in one way or another because I felt like I was I was dismissive of the first part of her career because I said we we didn't know Nora Ephron as like a household name until the late 80s, basically. Mm. But she was extraordinarily active for two decades beforehand as a as a writer as a journalist as a columnist Mm -hmm. as a I forget exactly how involved she was with all the president's men I think she rewrote the script really yeah yeah for Bernstein I don't think that it was used though oh that makes sense she did one of the drafts yeah Wow. Like, what a fucking giant, man. Yes. And someone who had, like, four or five careers in a lifetime and just, like, I mean, if she'd done, like, a third of what she did, it would still be a different world because of her. It's going to be huge, yeah. I mean, she died so young. It's just extremely tragic. But, like, yeah. you know, I feel like she's as big as Julia Child, right? Like she, oh, yeah. She recreated or popularized or, or brought a specific format to a massive audience. Yeah. I wonder what that was like for her to cover another giant. And I wonder if she knew that she was a giant. Yeah. I hope so. I feel like there's good odds that she did. But like, it's also you can never get outside yourself. You can never really experience someone else experiencing you. But yeah, like the same way that Julia Child taught American women to cook, I think Nora Ephron taught American girls to be funny. And I am one of those girls. Mm, That's really awesome. (laughs) We've really gone down the rabbit hole in a really in a really great way. But like, what about this movie outside of the portrayal of Julie? What about this movie feels special to you? Again, like the first time I saw it, it really became a model for me of this idea that like you can reach your dreams by loving someone else's work or loving what you are able to access of somebody from afar and communicating that to more people. And like, I really, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that I built my career off of this movie's example. (laughs) And like, maybe that would have occurred to me anyway, but like, we don't know. So thank you, Nora. I love you, Nora. (laughs) I just said that she died so young. She died at 71. For some reason, I thought she was like in her 50s. 71 is very young. We should have had another 20 years. I agree entirely. Yeah. My mom's 73 and she's a baby. If we got 90 years of Julia plus some, um, should have had more. Yeah. Nora. I love that that's the way that you see your career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I'll say also that like it's very funny for me to now be on the Julia side a little bit because like I see people mm. on social media being like I just want to be friends with Sarah Marshall and I'm like you know I'm like not that great of a friend <laughs> like I try really hard and I love my friends so much I know that I bring things to people like I, this is not a dig at myself, but like, I'm also the kind of person who will get randomly overwhelmed and not be able to answer a text message for months for some reason, you know, like of I, course. as everyone is, I am very flawed in execution and the best of myself is in what I put out into the world in many ways. And I feel like, yeah, it's very strange to, to now be on both sides of that equation and to understand the Julia side of it too. And to just be like, you know what? Like, I mean, I can give a lot of people more like through what I'm able to create, not necessarily in the moment or not necessarily interpersonally because interpersonally I do my best, but I get sweaty and weird and overwhelmed and yeah. When one's voice or one's insights or one's art or whatever the thing is, is presented to the world and it's received, there is a tendency to believe that, the person who presented those things is those things 100% of the time. Right. And I don't know, like maybe Julia was walking around just being a, you know, shining star of enthusiasm all the time. But I have a feeling that is not entirely true. And, you know, sometimes your life is just fucking exhausting and it's hard to be (laughs) a giddy TV chef. Right. Like the Julie half of the movie gets the kind of some of the unpleasant realities of, of humanhood kind of shunted onto her, partly because we really we don't really want to see Julia Child that way, but Julie can take it, apparently. And honestly, the thing that I dislike about the Julie parts, it's not Julie, it's the fact that it falls back onto me, the very lazy trope of a woman doing something that she's passionate about and her husband slash boyfriend becoming whiny about the fact that he feels less attended to than he would like because she's busy with this new passion which i just think is is like a lazy trope and i'm tired of it can you say that again i want to i want to make sure i understand what you're saying well i guess i mean the basic thing of he's like you're so busy cooking you don't have time for sex and it's like this Mm. is a contrivance i know that we need some kind of conflict in this movie and we can't bear to have Julia and Paul have conflict because they're so adorable and sexy and they're just eating and humping the whole time. And we don't want to spoil that. But like, this is a boring, contrived conflict to be having. Totally. I got you now. I think the real tension wouldn't be that. The real tension would be like, there's a person who's extremely online and there's a person who's not online at all. And often that is actually a really great combination. But sometimes the not as an extremely online person just has no frame of reference for anything the extremely online person is referencing or engaging in. Yeah. (laughs) And at some point, like this guy has to be like, who are you talking to? Right. How real is this? What's happening? Yeah. I'm just Exploring the concept of like being written about against your will or being part of someone's content factory like that feels more interesting to me and more prescient. And this like you're so busy doing X, you forgot to be my wife thing is just so boring. I'm so tired of it. It's we've all seen Norma Ray. If you haven't seen Norma Ray, go see Norma Ray. It's great. Aside from that part, I remember actually tweeting about this once and being like, I'm so tired of this trope. Please tell me, like, what are the movies where this isn't a thing? Like, where a woman has not a love interest, love interests don't count, but like a boyfriend or a husband, some kind of male partner, they're already in a relationship, 
and he doesn't become whiny about her doing something important. And the movie has to think that the thing she is doing is important. And those are my two criteria. And fucking nobody could think of anything. The only answers are on the basis of sex. A lot of people said that. I haven't seen it yet. And half of this movie with Paul and Spotlight with Hansi. Mm. Didn't Fargo come up a lot? Oh, yeah. And Fargo. That's the other one. So we have three data points. Well, we have no, we have four data points. Haven't seen on the basis of sex, but three of these four men in these data points are bald. <laughs> so find a bald guy. That's the answer. The tension should just be like, should not be like, I'm upset that like you're not paying attention to me. It should just be like, your job is stupid. Right. I don't get the internet. Why are people paying attention to this? Like I, w- I would get that in 2002. Not so much now, I guess. Yeah. Or just like stop writing about me on your blog, which we got a little bit. We got that in the Devil Wears Prada. We got both. It's like, you're not paying attention to me and your job is stupid. Yeah. That's a fun one. Oh, man. Why do you think people respond the way they do? Like, when I said something about this movie without any context, I'd mm-hmm. say, like, half the people that responded were like, I love the Julia part. Like, mm-hmm. there's a part online where you can get just the Julia parts. Like, yeah. like why, as someone who feels represented by Julie, why do you think that that is people's response to this? I don't know. Why don't you guys like me? (laughs) I assume it's because Julia gets all the fun parts. We don't see her become whiny. She always has her chin up. She is always charging ahead, being an optimist. And then maybe because of the high contrast of that, Julie seems more annoying. But it's like, I don't really know what she does that's that annoying. She's I think maybe she's uncomfortably relatable especially to millennials like this is a gen x character but she's really living that millennial life of just being like ah fuck there's just no career for me and i have to invent one on the internet i guess and i don't know she has meltdowns while trying over ambitious recipes and she can't make an aspic and do all of you think that you could make an aspic with a plum on the first try i really don't get like (laughs) why do you think that is i have spent more time than normal for the past couple of years just embracing how you know for lack of a better word fucked up I (laughs) (laughs) and ever since I started doing that like people or things or scenarios that felt cringy to me don't as much anymore because I realize that often the reasons those feel cringy to me is because consciously or subconsciously they're reminding me of my own deficiencies by no means am I saying like what Julia is going through are deficiencies or whatever but things that I don't feel like I have a stable relationship with or understanding of in my own personality I should say and I just often assume like especially when there's like a mass response like that that people are responding to ways that they relate. I felt this way about the the kidney story. This is how I felt about the kidney story. And if you don't know what the kidney story, I'm not going to explain the kidney story. Like if you know it, you'll know what we're talking about or just like, yeah. just like a kidney New York Times story. But like, the, <laughs> I felt like every character in that story was relatable, particularly their cringiest parts. Oh yeah. And I would say that online and I saw much less engagement from people than I normally see because I think people in that moment of like roasting people who are very specifically cringy in very specific ways were using it as an opportunity. You mentioned the the dress internet yeah. dress phenomenon a couple of years ago. It was that, that sort of thing where it was like, if you identify with something by saying you're not something mm-hmm. and I don't know, I see 
particularly since I've started making a good deal of my living off of doing what we're doing right now. If I'm going to be good at what I'm doing, I have to acknowledge how it factors into my life. And I think the things that are most annoying about this person that are perceived as most annoying about this person are all the things that in one way or another make us good at what we do. Mm, I think you're right. Yeah. Sometimes you're the Julie. Sometimes you're the Julia. The kidney story, I will just say that like that is a story that I think was tailor made to become explosive on Twitter, partly because a lot of the people on Twitter, or at least the people who are like driving those numbers are anxious writers who are tweeting because writing is a job that gives you that kind of downtime. And yeah, just seeing writers being like, can you imagine? And it's like, you're a writer. You can imagine. You can imagine being both these people. I swear to God. Like I would say the cohort of people I follow the most on Twitter are people who write. Word makers. So yeah, word makers, like people who people who do that. And this is a group that I would say, and I don't mean to be shitty and I'm not trying to be shitty, but this is a group who, and I am lumping myself into this, even though I'm not, I have not been a person who writes for money for a long time. As a group goes, this is a people that puts their feelings or ideas into words, puts it out into the world, and then often gets really weird and anxious about that process. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it is sometimes, if not always, in one way or another, illustrating kind of a simmering underlying anxiety about being liked or loved. Mm -hmm. And so when a piece came out and was like, look at these people who are exactly like that. <laughs> that was a lot to put in front of this group of people. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was amazed and I shouldn't have been amazed by the legs that story had, like how it, just the discourse about it. I was kind of hearing about it secondhand from you and other people because I've been minimizing my Twitter time to, uh, you know, as small as possible. But like it just went on and on. And I think it just, yeah, for those very reasons, like the, I think the stories that have legs like that, we the people who are keeping them going, like there has to be some sense of of self-identification or self-exploration there. Again, like I don't think the people who are watching this were all like bloggers or people who are in this arena in one way or another. But like, as you were saying, like someone who has to like kind of construct their job or like invent their job. And then because there's no book by which their job operates, things get weird and messy sometimes and you can't be a great and measured personality all the time because you're trying to figure out like what your job is and who you are in the world and what that means and like your friends are more successful or whatever like mm -hmm. julie is a fucking millennial as hell yeah she is living the millennial plight she's a millennial mascot yeah she's a millennial before millennials were invented and also like the part where she's on the floor going, I can't even trust. Like, that's fucking cute. Don't tell me that isn't adorable. It's adorable. <laughs> it's so good. I love this. Carolyn is the person who originally showed me this movie. I haven't known this movie for a long time. Carolyn showed this to me a couple years ago, and she adores this movie. And so, yeah, you asked about how my mom liked the movie and my favorite bit of feedback from my mom she said i always like the redhead she's in some things that i like she's never as dense as she looks which i thought was just phenomenal and then my mom my mom and i were walking around like i said we were walking around a cemetery today at the cemetery like newer graves like as of the past like 10 years 
on some of the graves, there's pictures of the people and not like an engraving, yeah. but like a, a real photo almost turned into like a shellac stone or something or like mm. a plaque. Wow. And that's on the, that's on the grave. There was a picture of a young woman. Uh, she was like in her early twenties and she was holding her child. And in the picture, it appears that the woman was wearing a bikini top mm-hmm. and I just said in passing, I was like, well, that seems like a weird choice of the the photo to use for this occasion. And my mom was like, no, no, no. I saw that picture and that was just the top piece of a two-part bathing suit. (laughs) Like she thought you were saying that she was wearing only the top part? Sarah, the thing is, I don't know how we were disagreeing. Like we weren't disagreeing right. at all. We were, and then I was like, well, okay. I was like, but you know what I'm saying? Like, again, like no disrespect. This was just interesting to me. I'm just really into the thought pattern of whoever selected yeah. this photo. I was like, you know, it's, we're kind of talking about the same thing, like bikini two piece suit. And then she's just quiet for a second. And she's like, yeah, well, I guess that is an interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> and now it will be my choice. Like, I don't even have pictures of myself in a bathing suit. And this is another Nora Ephron thing, by the way. I think she said, like, if you were 24, stop right now, put on a bathing suit or yes. a bikini and like, don't take it off until you're 33, I think. Yeah. And then get someone to take a picture of you in it so you can put it on your grave. Oh, man. And it was a it was an adorable photo of this woman and her son and her son had an eye patch. It was a really fascinating photo. But I was just like, "Mm, this is a fascinating choice. But also it was just so characteristic of a conversation my mother and I would have where turns out we're not disagreeing about anything at all. But for some reason, we're putting a lot of energy into not disagreeing. Well, there you go. There's Twitter for you. Two people vehemently saying the same thing. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) I mean, I think like the obvious merits of this movie are the chemistry between Tooch and Streep. It's just off the charts. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) How would you describe what that looks like or comes off as on screen? It's just really fucking hot. I am so happy whenever there's a movie that shows an older couple being super hot for each other because I think we have a myth in America that sex belongs to the young I'm like no it doesn't enough belongs to the young let's not see all of sex to young people as well (laughs) and also I think Stanley Tucci is like a nice balance to Osborne Cox and Burn After Reading because here's a man with beautiful pajamas and a beautiful silk dressing gown who's no, there's a big Italian dick swinging around in there and he's going to use it later today <laughs> during his nap. <laughs> Not even later today, like in in moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love I feel like there's a myth that like happy marriages are boring, but they're not. I think there's nothing more interesting than happy relationships because like the work that goes into that, the work you have to do on yourself the joy that you can take in someone else and knowing them and supporting them is interesting. And I feel like this movie demonstrates that this is an interesting couple and they're fun to watch. Just give me more movies of people boning and eating and not fighting. That's all I want. Right on. Excellent. Watch Julie and Julie if you haven't already. You didn't have to have seen this movie to get this conversation, but uh, if you haven't seen it, you're really hurting yourself in one way or another. Yeah, and then go cook something. I made poached eggs today, and I felt very cool and closer to Julia and Nora and everybody. And that redhead who's not as dense as she looks. (laughs) All right, everybody. That is it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. 
thank you to Fresh Lesh for the beats. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at You Are Good Pod. Uh, you can find us at Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Don't forget that new episode about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Next week, we will be watching Tu Wang Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. It is a big fun conversation. Thanks for everything. Thanks for being here. You are good. Take care. 